Welcome, everybody, to the Seattle Sports Union Podcast. My name is Abraham DeWeese. We're back once again with the soul man, Brian Solak, and the damn dirty duck, Matt Page. But we've got enough of those two losers. We've got a special <laughs> guest, the one honorable Kirby Arnold, former Everett Herald sports writer and editor for baseball and football, and as well author of the 2008 book, Tales from the Seattle Mariners Dugout. Welcome, Kirby. Wow, it's good to be here. And nobody's ever called me honorable. And not too many people have called me special. Maybe my mom. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's a shame. That's a shame right there. Hey, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Good to talk to you guys. Hey, uh, really <sighs> quick. How, how's the golf game real quick? To, to tell me real quick. Well, you know, uh, some days it's good. Some days it's not as good. So... But I do it every day. So uh, when I'm down here in Arizona, so right on. Uh, hopefully, one day I'll get to be like that. I, that's my yeah. goal, anyway. Yeah. Uh, would you tell our? I know Abraham just did a brief description of your career, but do you mind telling us just a little bit about yourself from where you you know started out and where you ended up, just for for our audience? Listen, yeah, listen uh, yeah. Bear with me a little bit here because. Uh, if everything had gone to a plan, I would have become a major league baseball player, left-handed pitcher and made millions of dollars. But uh, what I learned when I went to, uh, well, back up a little bit. Uh, when I was in high school, I always knew, even younger than that, uh, growing up outside of St. Louis in a small town in central Missouri, um, my mom and dad would take me to St. Louis Cardinals games. And I always wanted to be a baseball player. But I remember one night, I looked on the top of the stadium and there was this booth up in the top of old Bush Mm -hmm. Stadium, Sportsman's Park back in the early to mid sixties. And I asked my dad, what are those guys doing up there? And he says, Oh, those are all the sports writers. And and they're up there. They cover the ball game from the newspaper. And then they write the story for the next day's newspaper. And I said, so wait a minute, they get to go to all these baseball games and watch the Cardinals every night. And he said, yeah, I said, and I remember thinking to myself, I was only nine or 10 years old. I remember thinking to myself, well, if I can't play baseball, I want to do that. So I went on, I played a lot of baseball, played some high school baseball. When I was a sophomore in high school, I was lucky enough to get a job at my hometown newspaper, the Rolla Daily News in Rolla, Missouri. And basically what I did was uh, I take the scorebooks from the little league ballparks around town and I would write a little stor- short story about all of the each of the little league baseball games that that happened uh, that summer. Um, one thing led to another. I was covering uh, in University of Missouri at Rolla football, basketball, some baseball when I was still in high school. In fact, at one point, the sports editor uh, had gotten drafted into the army. I was the only sports writer left, and when I was a senior in high school. I was covering my own high school basketball games, believe it or not. Oh, wow. And in the stands, keep taking notes for me while I was sitting <laughs> on the bench. The good thing about it was I didn't play a whole lot when I was a senior. Oh. And, uh, so I, I sat the bench and I was able to observe a lot. But You couldn't, you couldn't make uh, write articles about that phenom, Kirby, and how amazing he is? And- no, because that phenom only got garbage time minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> well, that was, that was the extent of that. But I did, you know, I played... I, I was a decent high school baseball player and uh, uh, played on a few all-star teams and Legion teams and things like that. Went to college, uh, went to Missouri, what is now Missouri State University. It was Southwest Missouri State at the time. Uh, was on the team 
and really never, ever, never played. I realized my limitations right there. And uh, so um, I realized right then eh, this baseball thing is a lot tougher than, than, than I thought it might be. So, but I was still interested in English and journalism and writing. And uh, so I pursued that and I wound up getting on at the local newspaper in Springfield, Missouri, which was, you know, it was a big town there and covered several colleges and, and uh, graduated from college in 76, stayed on at the newspaper. And then uh, next thing I know, I'd worked there for 10 years. And then my old editor, who was in Rolla, Missouri, had moved up to the Seattle area and became the sports editor up there at a paper. And uh, he called me in the summer of 84 and said, hey, I'm in Everett, Washington. Would uh, you be interested in coming up here? Because I got an opening for an assistant sports editor. And I said, man, that sounds awesome because I knew that the paper covered a lot of high schools, which I was used to. Uh, it was, in, you know, close to the city, covered the major league sports, major colleges, that sort of thing. I was really interested, but I have one question. Where in the world is Everett, Washington? <laughs> when you grow up in the middle of, of, of the country, um, my wife and I remember we walked over to the library and found an atlas and looked and see how far onto the edge of the world Seattle was. <laughs> it really looked like it was on the edge of the world. But we, we came out uh, that next week for an interview and I loved it. And uh, um, one thing led to another in, in August of 84. I came up as the assistant sports editor. Three years later, uh, my editor left, became the sports editor of the Dallas Morning News. I became the sports editor in Everett. Uh, did that job for 10 years or so, and then uh, left for a brief stint in Denver as the Sunday sports editor at the Denver Post, then came back to Everett uh, when they had an opening for uh, the Mariners writer, and I took over the Mariner beat in 1999, started with the 99 season and then covered them through 2011. Had the time of my life doing it, too. Started right at the right time and may have gone oh, yeah. a little too yeah, long, unfortunately. A, <laughs> yeah, you could tell. You know, 99 was, was an exciting time because 99 was the end of the kingdom, which as a writer, I didn't realize it at the time. I loved the kingdom because it was so nice and warm in that building uh. in April and early May and in late September. Because uh, you know what uh, T-Mobile Park is like, uh, if you've ever been in the press yeah. there, or even in the stands there, that wind blows in off the water, and, and they keep those big doors open in the press box, and it is cold. In yeah, there. those April games get really chilly. Exactly. But so 99 was pretty fun because it was the last, you know, half season of baseball in the kingdom, and then uh, right across the street, what became Safeco Field was being built, and then they moved over there in uh, July of that year. And and uh, and then at the at the time, you knew they had a pretty decent team too, the beginnings of a decent team if they added some pieces to it. Of course, we had the Griffey situation was not really great at the time because uh, I don't think he was real. He wasn't real happy with with the outdoor ballpark, and uh, he made it known pretty clearly that he wasn't happy with it. But uh, anyway, so the Mariners move over there. And then 2000, you really saw the pieces come together. Uh, and they had a really good ball club for 2000, 2001, and even 2002, they faded down the stretch. But uh, those are really fun years, especially with Lou Pinella and, and, you know, Mike Cameron came in there and A-Rod during his last year or so in Seattle. And uh, 
Brett Boone, Mike, let's see what I said, Mike Cameron, Edgar, Dan Wilson, Moyer, I mean, Buner. That's a great group of guys to, to cover. It was really fun. How jealous. I'm, I'm jealous. That's awesome. <laughs> um, I, I want to I, I talk about your book that you wrote because um, it was called 2008 Tales from the Seattle Mariners Dugout. Um, I remember when it came out, I, I'll be honest, I didn't, I waited till it was in the library when I read it, but I, I did make a purchase recently and it's on my, uh, your, didn't, you had a revised edition, I believe, and it's on its way. So I'm look, looking forward to that, but what, what, can you tell me why you wrote it and maybe tell us one or two stories, good stories? Yeah, I, you know, I, I never set out to write a book. For one thing, the publisher actually approached me. I think they had approached Larry LaRue of the Tacoma News Tribune early on and Larry uh, and this, the, the way this publisher it was sports publishing at the time, they had a very specific format because they did this type of book for a lot of different sports organizations. And, uh, and so this was, it was called tales from the Mariners dugout. There's also one tales from the Cincinnati Reds dugout, whatever. And uh, they, it was, like I said, a very specific format where it wasn't necessarily a history book. It was just a collection of, stories and anecdotes and tales and things like that. So, so um, Larry did not really want to write that format. He, Larry was a photographer. He had certain things that he really wanted to write and wanted to do his own book. And so I don't think he and the publisher agreed on, on that. So maybe Larry gave him my name. I don't know, but uh, anyway, so they contacted me and I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, so it took me about a year and I just talked to a lot of people and uh especially, you know, with the current state of the ball club there in the mid 2000s, uh, we'd gone through some great times and they were kind of in the midst of, a, of that downturn there. And, um, but there were so many characters with this, with that organization going back to, to 77 to the very first pitch. And so, you know, I, I had access, you know, to, to be able to have access to a lot of people who were there in 77, uh, you know, Dave Niehaus, uh, Rick Griffin, the trainer, you know, there's some, some old players that still hang around Alvin Davis, you know, stories about him. It was just, um, it was a lot of fun to do it. So it took me about a year and I did it. And in the way I kind of wanted to do the book, uh, I, I didn't, it was, it's not necessarily a history book about the history of the organization, but hopefully from some of the stories and the tales and anecdotes and things that you can get a sense of what organization has gone through the good times the, the tough times the, the the funny people the funny things that have happened and uh, some of the pranks and pranksters and things like that and then uh, uh and then you know and some of the touching things like uh what the team went through in 2001 in, in you know new york after the uh 9-11 and all that so it, it was a fun project and i did it i wrote it in 2007 it came out in 2008 like you said and then two or three years ago we we the actual, the title was actually purchased by another publisher and they wanted to do an update. So I did a very, you know, it's just a, I deleted a couple of things out of it and then just kind of wrote a, another chapter, which kind of brought it up to a couple of years ago, which basically said this guy named Kelnick might be a pretty good player. And <laughs> named Crawford might be a pretty good player, but that's yeah. all we go on at that time. I mean, yeah. you know, um, the thing that struck me when I did the update is that all of a sudden there are kids. I mean, there's a whole generation of 
Seattle and Mariner fans that have grown up not having known what success is about with this organization and not knowing what 2001 was like and what playoff baseball and what a full house at, at T-Mobile Park is like. That's why it was kind of cool the last weekend of this past season. Uh, I wasn't there, but you know, to hear people talk about what it was like at the ballpark to have some meaningful games to play and what it was like to have the crowd into it. Both the energy back in the stadium. Exactly. I mean, it, the energy was was unreal. It was really cool. I miss that. Yeah. I have a, I have a specific question about 2001 and one of the members. Um, okay. We we, uh, we might potentially at some point have Brett Boone on the on the uh, on the podcast down the road here, but I, I want to ask you if you've ever asked him, what was the deal with the two strike stance? Did you ever ask him about that? Uh, I know we talked about it because we talked to Booney all the time. He was such a go-to guy back then. In fact, you know, that, that season was so, it was so interesting because everything was the same. Every game was the same. Uh, I mean, they won 116 games and they won them with great defense, good hitting, uh, enough power, speed, small ball. You know, they get a lead and then they they had that shut down bullpen in the last three innings. It's just and I remember we would go to Booney after the games and he would just look at us and shrug his shoulders and say, I don't know what more I can tell you that I haven't told you every other night. It's just the way it is. But as far as the two strike stance, uh, I remember writing something about it back then and how, you know, until he got two strikes, Booney looked like he was about ready to to grind the bat handle into sawdust, you know, the way he would stand up there and then take those big mighty hacks. But then, you know, he would shorten up a little bit and he would put the ball in play. And yeah. uh, uh, another story about Booney, I remember, is that was the year that you know, the Mariners lost A-Rod. And I remember in the offseason uh, calling uh, Pinella and asked, it is right, right. It might have been the day that they announced Booney was, was, coming to the Mariners. And I, I called Lou and I said, Lou, is this the guy that's you expect to replace a lot of A-Rod's numbers? And Lou just laughed at me. He says, Oh, hell, heck no. Heavens no. You know, so, but you know what Booney became, he was a, he was, you know, good little defensive player, handled the bat. Well, hit with some power, you know, could run. Maybe he just, uh, he and Cameron and, you know, and guy like Macklemore. So, uh, but I, yeah, I remember. I don't remember what specifically Booney would say about the two strike stance, but I knew though that was a conscious thing. I mean, he would shorten up and uh, and make sure he could, you know, put that ball in play. Um, can you share a, a specific story that we may or may not know about you and Edgar Martinez? I mean, I believe that you guys were pretty good. It seemed like you had a good relationship. Yeah, I think all of us as writers said a really good relationship with Edgar. Edgar was he's such an interesting guy because uh, he could go three for four with a home run, two doubles, maybe a walk, four or five RBIs, and then we'd all be clustered around his locker after the game and waiting for him, and he'd be in the weight room you know, doing his normal lifting for 20 or 30 minutes. And then he'd walk in there and act surprised like, Oh, you guys want to talk to me? I mean, that's how humble <laughs> this guy is just such a humble guy. And uh, that's how we all knew Edgar. And I remember one time, remember there was a guy named John Mabry who played with the Mariners. I yeah. think it was maybe in 2000, 
um, maybe 99. And I remember talking to Mabry about Edgar and just what makes him as good as he is, because, you know, he didn't have all the physical tools in the world, but, and Mabry just said, well, look over there right now and look at Edgar's locker. And there's Edgar sitting in his locker and he, and he had a, um, an exercise band attached to the locker, just doing something. There were other guys sitting around the clubhouse watching TV, whatever. Edgar was always doing some sort of work. He was working on, you know, his shoulders or whatever. He, he had all the eye exercises that he did. Um, always had a bat in his hand, you know, working in the cage. He's in the weight room a lot. So uh, that was Edgar. And uh, um, that's kind of what, yeah, I, I, Edgar's a real, one of the real special athletes that I've ever covered. And I uh, was so glad to see him get into the Hall of Fame. I'm sorry he had to wait so long, but uh, uh, it was really cool to see that happen. Absolutely. That's very cool. Um, I, I know I, I probably have a couple more questions if we have time later, but I know Matt wants to talk about IndyCar. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you could have stayed on baseball for a while longer. That's no problem. Uh, so you're an at you're 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 a big time IndyCar. I think I was reading you've been to 27. I think so. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I went my first one. My first Indy 500 was in 1974, and uh, when I was living in Missouri, I I covered 10 through through 1984. Then I moved to Seattle mm-hmm. and uh, took some time off and didn't didn't go back. But then in 2005, I started going back and have been back every ever since. A lot of that was uh, when I started going back in 05, I just, you know, I've got season tickets in turn three and I would go as a spectator and, and watch the race. But then after I retired from the newspaper business, cause I was busy covering baseball back then. So I would, if, you know, I would just take maybe a weekend off from covering the Mariners and fly out to Indianapolis and then uh, watch the race and then fly back. But, uh, mm-hmm. um, but then after I'd retired, I kind of got hooked up with some people that I knew in Indianapolis. A friend of mine who was the uh, IndyCar beat writer for the Indianapolis Star wound up becoming the communications director for the IndyCar series at the time. And uh, I kind of hooked up with him and he said, yeah, hey, why don't you, you know, if you think about doing some writing, we'd like to have you do it. So I came out, they had a test actually, a preseason test down here in Phoenix. And so I went there and did a few things and wrote a few stories and they liked it. And so they asked me to kind of stay on as uh, just write some special projects for the IndyCar website, which is what I did. Mm-hmm. And did that for a few years. That was probably 19 or 2016, I think. Did that for several years. Then a couple of years ago, the, the Penske, Roger Penske Corporation uh, bought IndyCar and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. At the same time, COVID hit. Uh, they had a huge reduction in their staff, which meant they had a huge reduction in their freelance budget, which basically was zero. So, but I still, so I'm not doing it with IndyCar anymore, but I'm still writing for a few websites. Uh, there's a site called Auto Blog out of Detroit. Mm-hmm. I've done a few things for, and then uh, Motorsports Tribune, which a friend of mine out of Dallas has, uh, in, has, and then, you know, a few other projects that I'll do for some people. So, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. An excellent article that I, I, I read there, the Motorsports Tribune. Um, I think that's where I saw the 27th time. It surprised me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you've seen, so you've seen the Spider-Man act four times then. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't actually. I guess no. You're across the speedway probably from it, aren't you? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, his first three, I did not witness because maybe I witnessed one of them. Okay, for 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 uh, for folks who don't know, Elio Castro Neves uh, is a racer who he's famous for winning. When he wins, he climbs the uh, fence around the speedway, exactly. and they na- nicknamed him Spider Man for it. And he won it the fourth time this this last year. Yeah, yeah, and it was kind of a surprise victory, you know. It was. Know. With he 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 had driven for the Penske team, which is like, you know, uh, the, the New York Yankees of of IndyCar racing, so to speak. I mean, a lot of money, uh, all the resources, most all the fast cars. They've won uh, more Indy 500s than any other team over history. And then, uh, and Elio was a part of that team. But uh, last year was his first year not driving for that team. And he actually wound up driving for Michael Shank Racing, which was a reasonably new team in IndyCar, but a really good team. And uh, and Ilio won the race, and it was his fourth victory, so it was a real historic thing. And yeah, he stopped on the front straightaway after he crossed the finish line, climbed the fence with his crew, and it it really set off a celebration that you that I don't know that it's ever been seen the way it played out uh, in the history of the Speedway. He ran up and down on the front straightaway just celebrating and hugging anybody he could so but that's that's Castro Nevis too he's pretty the jovial guy and I, and I've asked uh, over the years I ask a lot of people who are much more on the inside than I am uh is this is this is this real or is this an act and they say no this is the real deal that's really Elio so well that was pretty cool to see um <clears throat> yeah do you um I was gonna say I, I I think I remember um I think I remember meeting him way, 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 way back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been, to, I've been to uh, me and my my father used to go to Portland Internet Portland Raceway when they when, they, when it was cart, right? You know? Yeah. Uh, before the split uh, between IndyCar and cart, and uh, we'd go over there and we did the paddock pass and meet all the meet all the things. I've got autographs up the you know on the wall of you know famous you know Michael Andretti and right. Mario and. Alan Sir and Bobby Ray Hall and so on. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he, he, his passion was always evident. Elio was, was a great guy to watch. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, have you ever covered any of the other, any other motorsports? Well, yeah. Um, you know, I've, I covered a lot of motorsports when I was working back in Missouri. I covered a lot of short track uh, stock car racing. In fact, uh, back in Springfield, Missouri, they had a half mile uh, paved track, much like uh, much like Evergreen Speedway is up in. Mm-hmm. But um, the weekly racing back there in the mid seventies through the early eighties, you had drivers like Dick Trickle, and, and, and motorsports people would know who this, these people are. Dick Trickle, Mark Martin was a sixteen year old kid who came up from Batesville, Arkansas, to race every Friday night at Springfield, Missouri. Um, Kenny Schrader out of St. Louis, Rusty Wallace oh, of St. Louis. Uh, and then the local hero there is a guy named Larry Phillips, who's won more races than just about anybody. Um, Larry holds a national record for – actually, he's a five-time uh, NASCAR weekly racing series champion, so nobody's ever been able to do that. But the cool thing – we talk about the Wallace family. Um, they, the Wallaces actually lived in Rolla, Missouri – back when I was a kid and Rusty, I think is a year younger than me. Rusty was in my, my same little league 
And so we played little league baseball against each other for a couple of years. And his dad drove a stock car. That's how I got to know the, the Wallace family. And then when Rusty um, was probably 18 or 19 years old, he started, he was driving full-time short track and he would come to Springfield and, uh, and I remember hanging out in his pit quite a bit. And I got to know the Wallace family pretty well uh, at that time. And in fact, I still, still have a good friendship uh, with Rusty, obviously, but uh, with Kenny Wallace, especially because Kenny would come down here to Phoenix when he was broadcasting on the, the Fox TV crew and he would stay at a hotel real close to where I lived down here. And we would always get together for dinner a couple of times when he was down here. So, uh, so yeah, I maintain those, those relationships, but as far as covering anything else, yeah, I covered some drag racing. I covered uh, uh, dirt track racing. I covered, you know, Evergreen Speedway and uh, Skagit Speedway when I was working in Everett. So, I, and I love it. And I still, I still go to those racetracks when I can, when I'm back there in the summertime. I love it. Yeah, we got uh, we got a chance to go to the Evergreen Speedway here this past summer. Uh, Brian got his first introduction to That's some <laughs> some real, uh, you know, I guess like I, I I hate to use the term, but really it is. It's redneck racing, basically. They uh, we had a rainy day and they they clear they warmed the track by dragging uh, monster tractor tires behind yeah. them. Yeah. that's what they. Do. <laughs> Evergreen Speedway may be the only racetrack in the country that races in the rain now, they don't run the super stock cars in the rain that's a lot of money to be uh you know plowing into a wall yeah those kinds of speeds but uh but other divisions yeah they run in the rain and i mean it doesn't matter the level where whether you're running a, a real high dollar super stock or a or a, a, a hobby stock that may cost you you know a thousand dollars or so you know in a claimer class or whatever the people are passionate about it oh and yeah that, thing that i love about <clears throat> racing and really all the all the sports that i cover is the passion that the people have for that now, there's so many great stories I mean, i've covered rodeo and i love and i know nothing about riding a horse <laughs> or roping a calf or any of that but man i you talk about some of the toughest athletes you i've ever encountered it's that's rodeo so uh um yeah it's just the great stories that's what's fun to to be around is uh to uncover those things and tell those stories um i had and one last uh general question um in regards to racing and then i'll let yep. you guys get back to sports that the other two guys here actually know um i uh i saw i think i saw you write an article about a few years back about fernando alonso yeah coming um, to indy and he was a quote-unquote rookie unquote right yeah two-time world champion he's an, he's a rookie yeah having said that uh he was a true rookie in, 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 <laughs> well, at, in at oval racing yes at oval racing yeah <laughs> i mean that is unlike anything hmm. anyone will ever experience and, and we're going to see it again this coming may when jimmy johnson runs hmm the Indy 500 or attempts to qualify for the Indy 500. And we'll see, everybody says he'll handle it fine. But uh, there was a lot of people who were really curious about how Fernando Alonso would, would handle, you know, going 230 miles an hour flat out. Uh, you don't lift off the, the accelerator uh, the whole way around and you're doing 230 for three hours in the race. And, and there's, you know, it's pit stops, it's 
running in the draft. Uh, it's a narrow racetrack. There's walls all around you, which you don't always have, in, you know, n nothing to that extent in, in Formula One. So, uh, uh, but he handled it well. I remember when the race started, um, he dropped back. He qualified fairly well, but he dropped back a few places and then he just slowly worked his way up. And next thing you know, he's leading the race. Mm -hmm. and, um, and who knows what would have happened, uh, but his engine let go. Yeah. In a little ball of smoke going down the main straightaway. And that was it. But uh, it's too uh, bad he hasn't been able to come back. But he was with a really good team with yeah. the Andretti team. And they knew what they were doing. He came back the following year with McLaren. With McLaren, yeah. McLaren did not have their act together. I mean, you talk, you know, we look at what the Kraken is doing as an expansion team, you said, yeah. you see, you know, that's kind of what McLaren was when they ventured into IndyCar and the Indy 500 that year. They did not know what they were in for and uh, they didn't qualify. And it was an embarrassment. To, to be fair, they have since got their act together. Uh, they have. They had a guy who was who almost won the uh, championship this year, and and yep. is they're looking good for next year. They got their uh, act together, and they were smart enough that they, they joined an existing program, the Schmidt-Pearson yeah. program, which uh, is one of the top teams in IndyCar. So yeah, yeah, they're so, good. Yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> um, I did have one one one, one more question. Sorry. Okay. Um, so. We're slowly seeing more talent leak over from Formula One. Speaking of, to like Romain Grosjean, who's one of my all-time favorite drivers, right. uh, and who's been doing was amazing last year, and he's going to be better this next year. He's got a real ride this next year. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a um, oh, there's a kid from the Ferrari um, driving school who was supposed to be the next Ferrari driver that bailed and is now going to be an IndyCar driver. He was in the last couple races at IndyCar this last year and I'm blanking on his name. Oh, uh, yeah. Iliot? Yeah, Callum Iliot, I think. Callum Iliot, yes. Yeah, yeah. I don't know a lot about him, but the people who are really in on the inside think a lot of some of this new talent coming in. Yeah, so my question to you is how do you think the the these Formula One racers will do? I mean, how well do you think that the going looking forward that, that it'll translate. I think they can. It's a different, it's a different car for one thing. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, they have to, well, I would say they have to adapt to the ovals, but there's so few ovals left in the series now mm -hmm. that uh, it's not that big a deal, but I don't know. We've seen Marcus Erickson adapt pretty well. Uh, obviously Fernando Alonso, adapted pretty well and i think he would do really good if he if he came back so i don't see any reason why any of these others could do well uh some have said i think didn't uh lewis hamilton say he had no interest in indycar i i, I yeah i don't think he does he's gonna win yeah, a, he's and, gonna win uh, an eighth world series a world championship right. and then move on retire. i'd like to see max verstappen come over so oh, that'd be fun yeah so we'll see it's really Put it in the wall when they come <laughs> you know one of the things that attracted me to that when I was a kid was that, you know, it's America's great race, but also, you know, you were bringing over Formula One stars like Graham Hill and people like that to run in the Indy 500. And I thought that was really cool. So uh, if they can do that, that's great. Back, uh, back to baseball. Back to baseball. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Right. I, I got a, I got a quick two-parter. Um, number one, 
Would you share a Lou Pinella story, one of your favorites? And does he deserve to be in the Hall of Fame as a manager? Uh, well, I mean, I think he's one of the great, great managers of all times. Uh, you know, if you look at those who are in there, uh, he has won a World Series with the Reds. He didn't quite make it with the Mariners, but uh, so I don't know. It's probably up to debate, but I, I do talk to, I've talked to a lot of players, you know, uh, Mike Blowers and, and guys who played for him and loved him, and they just talk about his knowledge his knowledge of his personnel and his knowledge of the other team's personnel were unmatched among anybody he, he has ever played for. And, uh, you know, we talk about analytics and everything now that seems to guide the game now, but Lou, Lou had that all, had all that knowledge himself. Lou actually, Lou actually uh, had the numbers too, and not to the extent that we have now, obviously, yeah. but uh, he had printouts on his desk every day when we were in there. So, uh, and I had people point out that, you know, Lou may seem like this, this old school Casey Stingle type manager, but uh, he looks at the numbers he knew, but he also, like Blower said, he knew his personnel and Blowers told me a story, which I think I'm sure I wrote it in the book. Um, it was late inning in a game, a tough right-handed pitcher, sinker ball pitcher, was was pitching against the Mariners and Blowers was on, you know, Blowers, a right-handed hitter, is is on the bench and, and Lou says, Mike, grab a bat. And Blowers are going, me? Why, why is he wanting me in here? You know, a tough righty. And Lou says, he throws that sinker and you can hit that low inside pitch. I know you can. And Blowers said, wow, okay. You know, and all of a sudden Blowers goes out there and thinks, man, Skip's got confidence in me. And sure enough, he got the sinker. He said, just look for the sinker. He got the sinker and uh, drove it up the left field line for a double. So, and, and that's where Lauer says, that's where he knows, he knows his guy, but he also knows what the other team is doing. And he, he's always, a, he was always a step ahead. It seemed like. Mm -hmm. Having said that, uh, I ran into Lou at Cooperstown during the Edgar um, uh, weekend a couple of years ago. And we were talking about the 2001 team and especially that series against the Yankees in the ALCS. And Lou just said, you know, the one thing I should have, you know, the one thing we should have done different. And of course my thinking was, well, yeah, I guess you should have. And Pat Gillick was actually standing there. And I said, well, Lou, you always talked about needing another hitter, right? And Gillick rolled his eyes at that. <laughs> <laughs> and Lou, Lou says, no, I never should have pitched Sealy. He had, oh. Yeah. I said, well, who did you have, who would you have thrown then? You know, cause Seeley was one of the, one of the guys and Seeley, you know, was not good in the postseason. I don't know if Seeley ever won a postseason game, but uh, uh, Seeley struggled in the postseason. but Lou says, I would have, I should have thrown Abbott in game five. I think it was because the Mariners had lost a, lost a really tough game four uh, when I think it was a tie game or maybe they were ahead by one run and, and Arthur Rhodes gave up a, pop-up home run to Bernie Williams. And then uh, Soriano hit a home run late in the game, in the ninth, I think, to win it. But uh, um, so the next game, so the, now the Mariners down three to one in that series and, uh, and Seeley's pitching and the Yankees got ahead of them and they, they blew them out. But yeah, Lou was, Lou was still fuming over that, uh, that, that 
you know, maybe I should have pitched to Abbott. Another story that sticks out with me about Lou was remember when Carlos Guillen laid down the bunt, I think it was the 2000 series against the White Sox. It was the mm-hmm. bunt. Then I think it scored Ricky Henderson, I believe, to win that series. Um, Lou had sent, Lou had talked to Guillen before the at-bat and said, here's what I want you to do. You're going to get a first pitch fastball. Uh, Frank Thomas is going to be charging from first base. All you got to do is push the ball past Frank Thomas. They can't respond to that. We win. And Guillen shakes his head and says, yeah, he goes up there. And I think who, who was, I can't remember who the pitcher was, Kelly Wunsch or somebody like that. But anyway, uh, Guillen gets a first pitch fastball and he takes a big mighty swing and fouls it straight back to the screen. And, and uh, John McLaren told me this story. In the dugout, Lou is blowing a gasket. He is cussing up a blue streak. He's walking up and down, and he's mad as a hornet and everything. Well, the very next pitch, Guillen drops the bunt, pushes it right past Frank Thomas. They win the game. Lou never saw that play because he was so ticked off. So, <laughs> so fast forward a few months later, it's early in spring, like the first day or so of spring training players have reported. And um, Lou asks Guillen, he says, you know, Carlos, uh, remember that, you know, remember that game against the White Sox? Why, uh, I told you to lay down that bunt, which soon as you saw a fastball, why did you swing? And, and Guillen says, Lou, because it was a good pitch and I thought I could put a good swing on it. And Lou started to lose it again. <laughs> And McLaren was in the office. There was in his office and McLaren was in the office and said, Lou, it's over. We won the game. Give it up. <laughs> Let it go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right on. Um, back to, I, I went to see Edgar's induction too. Funny that you brought that up. And I met Lou Pinella as well that day. And long story short, we were out, we were, I was talking, when are you going to be in the hall of fame? When are they going to elect you? He goes, you know, this weekend's all about Edgar. He goes, maybe next year it's me, but I mean, he's very yeah. passionate for He's one of my guys and it's all about Edgar. So real good guy, yeah. man. He's, he's an awesome guy. He was so fun to cover. And, uh, you know, there'd be times when guys would be going out for batting practice, but you know, the three or four of us writers would be sitting in his office talking, who knows what we'd be talking about. And he just stay in there and talk. He was, he was really good. And now you know, managers have their set time where you get your five minutes in a cluster in the dugout with them and then they're done, you know, and then they go back to, uh, to their meetings and spreadsheets and everything else. But, but Lou was, Lou literally was one of a kind and, and yeah, he was a great manager and he's a great person too. Kirby, you're, you're a baseball writer and, uh, the baseball writers are who put people in the hall of fame. Is Lou a hall of famer? (laughs) Well, like I said, personally, I think so. Uh, how his record would stack up with others, I, I don't know. Um, and I've never heard a huge push. That's one thing. The writers don't elect managers to the Hall of Fame, so yeah. uh, um, that would have to go to the what the New Era Committee or the what the Era Committee or whatever. So, and I haven't heard. I know he was kind of on the list, and then he fell off the list. So I haven't heard if there's been much of a push or not. I think there'll be. I think he has another chance, you know, at some point with some committee, but, uh, do you still have a vote or, uh, no, this was that I had a vote up until this year and, 
you know, after uh, we, we got 10 years after uh, leaving the beat and my 10 years expired. So this is my first year not to be roasted by people on Twitter. So, <laughs> oh, oh, and how dare and you forget you, so-and-so. Oh, yeah, that's, that's not know. fair. Matt Page doesn't even use Twitter and he roasted everybody. Oh, constantly. yeah. <laughs> so, I, get, I just get upset at the people who send in blank ballots because there are. Yeah, uh, I, I don't get guys. that. I don't get that. Yeah, I don't get that. I mean, you know, agree or disagree, but I. I voted how I, I felt, and I, I did. I I did not vote for uh, the steroid crowd, and that was after having discussions with some ball players who I can't name, and and uh, back when it was all going on, and mm-hmm. and you know they they said, here's the deal: we feel like we've got to do this. We know it's against the spirit of the game, but we feel like we have to do it. And that's a chance. And I, I asked him, you know, the, your, what about your legacy? They said, that's the chance we'll have to take. If it costs us Hall of Fame votes or the chance of getting the Hall of Fame, then so be it. We have to do this. So problem is, I think there's probably some players that did not have to do it and they'd still be great. So, but, yeah. um, but you know, my whole thing was if the Hall of Fame would just drop the character clause. And, and I put, you know, I put a fair amount of weight in sportsmanship, uh, integrity and character. If they would drop that, I'd vote for those guys, you know, but I feel that that's, there's part of an, there's an integrity issue there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and we can argue all we want about everybody was doing it and all that. But, uh, you know, if, I guess if you were dumb enough to get caught, too but uh, i just had not yeah i had not voted for those guys was there anybody no that's that's completely fair was there ever anybody on your on your list that uh you you really think should have gotten in but uh just missed it even though you voted for omission yeah yeah i'm trying to think here boy um andrew jones andrew jones is on the list Still, he's on. Still the, on the list, yeah. Yeah, I always, I, I, I really liked him. He's in the other league, so I never saw him all that much. But, but uh, I guess having covered those Mariner teams in the '99, 2000, 2001, and the premium on defense and what that means to see what he, he could do, yeah, um, uh, I always felt like he deserved it. Um, let's see, Schilling was an interesting one, you know, because maybe his overall record might not stack up with the absolute greats in the game, but I always felt like he was um, such a clutch performer. You really had to have that. And to me, that, that was a hall of fame thing. And, but so then you come down to his character, there was actually a year or so when I did not vote for him. And that was when he came out with that, um, that thing on Twitter that, that basically endorsed lynching journalists Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I remember that. Yeah. And I, I think I wrote something about it somewhere that um, it's not the journalist thing. I mean, you know, that's just that if, if you endorse doing that to any, anybody or anything, uh, that's a character thing for me. So I just, I didn't vote for him for a year and I had all of Boston on my case. Endorsing violence of any kind. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I'm with you uh, on but, that. and I said, but I, I'd be, re- I remain open to reconsidering if I see that, you know, he has, you know, 
wants to do something good for society. And actually, you know, the hurricane, uh, the hurricanes that ravaged uh, Latin America and, and, the, and the islands down there, he mm-hmm. had some really good work that I think went kind of under the radar. He, he had lots of medical supplies, water, food, things like that flown down to those those villages on his own dime. And I thought that was, you know, big of him. Uh, everything I've, I've never really encountered him personally, but everything I've seen and heard about him, he's a pretty big jerk. And I know some people who actually work at the golf course here where I spend a lot of time here in Arizona, uh, who've, who've had him uh, on the course. And uh, he hasn't been the most pleasant person to deal with personally, but, but, you know, guys like that, like a Jim Rice or something like that, if, just because they're kind of jerks to the writers or journalists, it's not going to, that's not going to sway me. But if you do something to the game, um, that tends to be where I make my considerations. Well, real quick, real quick. Uh, what about Jeff Kent? Uh, why isn't he in? I heard it's because he's a jerk to all you sports writers. Is that the reason why? I, yeah, I don't know. Um He's currently sitting at 28.7% on the public ballots right now this year. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm trying to remember if I have voted for him. I know I voted for Roland. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, Roland. Um, Absolutely. I never, I, I never considered the jerk factor as, as a factor. Um, like I said, if, if they do something to the game, then that's, that's where I kind of uh, – have my line in the sand on that. Yeah, just because you're not the friendliest guy yeah. in the world doesn't mean yeah. you're not a great baseball player. You know, exactly. Great things for the game. I yeah, I, I understand completely where you're coming from. Yep. Um, I want to ask back towards the Lou Pinella thing. Uh, is that is that something you think that baseball is missing? Right? Do, do you think baseball is missing the managers who throw first base into right field right now? I mean. You know, is that an, yeah, that's an aspect know, of the game you don't really see anymore? Yeah, you know, the whole game is different. And I had a talk, uh, actually got together for lunch with Brian Price a few weeks ago. Uh, if you mm-hmm. remember him, he was a pitching coach for the Mariners and he went on to Diamond Reds, right? Yeah. Reds and everything. He's living down here in Scottsdale. But we talked about how this game has changed and it's, it's just a different game than we were used to when I was used to watching and covering and everything. But as far as the fiery managers and everything, uh, yeah, you don't see that much anymore. And I don't know, um, has replay been a part of that or is it just the, the, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was, it was fun. It was advocating for your guys, you know, it was yeah. defending your guys. Right. Right. I, you know, we don't see it to that extent. anymore. Um, I'm trying to think of a manager off the top of my head, who, who would do something like that? Um, uh, David Bell got a little, got into a fight last year. I remember that. That's David Bell's there. got that in him. That's the yeah, one thing I really appreciate about him with the Mariners. He's a tough little guy, not little either, but he's, he's a, he's a tough guy. He's very mild mannered and everything, but he's the type of guy you want fighting for you. In fact, you know, talk about David Bell. I think one of the factors that was real, one of the factors not the factor, but one of the factors that really hurt the Mariners in the postseason in 2001 was that David Bell, I think it was an oblique problem that he developed uh, during the workouts when the season shut down because of 9-11. He strained an oblique during workout, and he was never the same. I mean, he batted like he hit 280 and hit 15 home runs that year and was just a good productive guy, and he batted, I think he hit less than 200 during the postseason and just really wasn't effective. You know, he played a 
played a solid third base when he was in there during the year. But uh, yep. then, um, you know, between that and Carlos Guillen with the tuberculosis and everything else, uh, there was a lot of factors that just didn't line up for the Mariners that year. But I like, yeah, I like David Bell. He's a fiery guy. Mm. I wish, yeah, baseball needs some fire. Um, I heard on an, if you guys listen to Ryan Roland Smith's podcast, he had Adam Jones on a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And, um, he talks about, you know, baseball needs to promote its stars and really, you know, the, uh, these guys, uh, they're stars that, that you need to promote and they're not doing it. So. Yeah. I mean, how many, how many, I mean, you can, you can name, you know, I mean, the average, the average household, they can name, you know, Peyton Manning or Tom Brady or, you know, uh, Kobe Bryant, you know, one, I don't know, LeBron James, I guess. I don't know. I, I don't follow yeah. basketball. Sorry, but you know, they can yeah. name some of the major, major stars of the other sports. How many, how many households across the world, across the nation know Fernando Tatis or Mike Trout? Right. Aaron Judge. Right. Not exactly. many. Yeah. I mean, it is like Adam, Adam was saying, uh, uh, probably the biggest name that universal across the country would be Otani, you know? Yeah. And, uh, um, and he's good, but there's other guys too that you can promote. So, yeah, I'm, I'm eager to, I mean, really eager to see what the Mariners come up with this year. 